Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, and welcome to Academy Rewind, the fortnightly podcast where we're taking a look at the Oscars from years past. I'm Tim, and with me, as always, is my man who loves boxing and then going to Ireland. It's Palmer. How are you today? I don't like either of those things. You don't like boxing? No, I do. Oh, okay. I was like, that's actually really, <laughs> that was really surprising. I was like, you, but you watch UFC. Like, I would assume that you would watch the classier version of it. Um, um To be fair, I barely watch UFC. Yeah. Like, I've, like, I used to watch UFC. See, back when it was like three hours of people struggling on the ground and nothing happened. Sure. Now it's fancy. They're like, oh, I have I have 40 black belts. And you're like, all right, that's cool. I yeah. don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a life. Yeah. No. Oh. Um, we are here to talk. About, I have a life. Meanwhile, let's talk about these movies from the 1950s. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, the 1953 Best Picture nominees are as follows. Moulin Rouge, The Quiet Man, High Noon, Ivanhoe, and The Greatest Show on Earth. Palmer, what won Best Picture? Greatest Show on Earth. That is correct. The Greatest Show on Earth. Did you know that ahead of time, or did it, was it spoiled for you? Uh, it was spoiled in a fun fact, but that was the one I was going to go with. Okay, yeah. It seems the likely candidate, um, yeah. especially when talking about movies from the 50s. Um, well, we'll leave it at that for now. Let's go backwards and talk about um, Moulin Rouge, directed by John Huston, written by John Huston and Anthony Wheeler, based on the novel by Pierre Lemieux, starring Jose Ferrer, Jaja Gabor, and Colette Marchand. Nominated for Best Picture, actor for Ferrer, supporting actress for Marchand, direction and editing. This movie won Best Art Direction for a Film in Color and Costume Design. The story revolves around the fictional account of the French artist Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec, uh, who has been um, who was a contemporary of, um, oh gosh, no, is Picasso. Um, if anybody, if you need some kind of, uh, um, well, he was actually the, I should, I should backtrack on that. He was the generation previous to Picasso, but they knew yeah. each other, but it was, um, but he was the, in the post impressionist movement, um, of artistry. So anyway, um, the, this Moulin Rouge is kind of a Not true a musical. story. <laughs> Not a musical, um, kind of a true story, um, you know that you know um Toulouse was obviously quite real you um the very famous there's some very famous paintings that he has done of the Moulin Rouge um and that um that you've probably seen and didn't and you might not know who who did it and so um I thought as far as the movie goes it's really just a biography of him right so and he in was, a very in a very um isolated time span yes yeah it's um it, 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 there are some flashbacks to his earlier childhood so he um he was rather short his he broke his legs as a child and he had um he had something wrong with it. I don't know what it was called but like his legs didn't grow after he after he um after he broke them so he was quite short through the majority through the majority of his life um and honestly I thought the effects for Jose Ferrer was that was the best part of the movie because the whole time I was like look at those camera effects look at him acting on his knees and me not noticing what a great job that like what a great job he did i thought his um 
I thought his best actor nomination was well deserved because he I I found him compelling even if I didn't find the rest of the movie compelling. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was interesting. I thought the art direction uh was very good um because it it looks like almost turn of the century um France Paris and uh, I I I liked that very much. I liked that Jose Ferrer played um Henry and his father. I thought mm-hmm. that was an, I thought that was an interesting choice. So you would like see their familial connection and you know the you know how like it almost like hammers home the disdain that his father has for him because they look so much alike yet Henry is so obviously so different so mm-hmm. yeah um but besides that I also it was kind of boring honestly uh, yeah like I'm not I'm not saying this guy didn't live an interesting life because oh he sure did yeah so this wealthy he, he, guy who's like I'm gonna hang out with the prostitutes because that is um, <laughs> who I find more interesting than my than my rich contemporaries who don't like me anyway because I'm really short right um but i jose ferrera it does a really good job at keeping you interested i would say one of the biggest problems i had with this movie was the accents uh inconsistent not necessarily uh, yeah inconsistent too but there were times like because of the age of this movie and the audio quality of the time Mm -hmm. there were times where like people with really heavy accents i was struggling to be able to understand Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So that I, I had I had that same problem. Yeah. So I so that took me out of it a little bit. Um, but even that, it feels like they took. It almost feels like they took like the most boring part of his story and was like, "This is what we're going to make the movie on," because it mostly revolves around like his relationship with this with this woman that he picks up that is just them fighting for five minutes and then her coming back for like thirty seconds and then them fighting for another five minutes Mm -hmm. and it shows like the tumultuousness of of both of their characters and their flaws which i thought was good but it it just it can get a little much when there was nothing to kind of break it up yep it was like a a less interesting pretty woman or pygmalion right yeah Um, because he like takes her home and she's like so are we gonna have the sex and he's like "Eh." and she's like okay can i take this can i take a bath he's like yeah all right (laughs) and i was like this looks familiar um yeah, it is. It's it. I found it. Like I said, I found it intriguing because I, I thought I thought that John Houston, whose movies always look good, it looks good. And I thought yeah. I thought Jose Farah kind of he really I I thought he did a good job at portraying Henry. I just thought he did. I thought he did a good job, especially with the like his limited mobility and like how he had to act around how he had to act around people. And I'm also a fan of his son Miguel Farah, um, who is a pretty prolific voice actor, especially for nerdy things um who just passed away pretty kind of recently right yeah a couple years ago i think it was this year i'm gonna look it up 2017 he passed away wow so that long ago that was that long ago um yeah no he does a really good job and and even stuff like and i know like there was a bunch of camera tricks and riggings to to help him do the part um but there were times where like i was just amazed like the fact like he was able to go from like a sitting position to just like start walking so seamlessly oh sure um yeah well you know you you kind of go with the technology you have available you know like i'm i'm still i'm looking at this in 1953 going that looks really good 
even for 1953. Yeah, it's not perfect, but you know what? Nothing really is. Uh, yeah, no, I I thought they did, they did a really good job with his height and really were able to kind of show, like, the shortness. Mm-hmm. And it didn't look as, and I will say, like, out of the out of the two Moulin Rouges that we've seen Toulouse-Lautrec, um, this one, he looked like, he doesn't look as as funny looking when he moved. And I realized, like, that was that was because of the exaggeration on John Leguizamo's part in Moulin Rouge. Oh, sure, yeah. But He'll actually be, Lautrec will be actually coming up uh, again in Midnight in Paris in our 2012 episode. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and then again in Moulin Rouge, and then which I believe is also next season. Uh, who, it, no, Moulin Rouge is 2001, isn't it? Oh, it could be. Uh, hold on, I can check for you while yeah. we're... Um, 2002... Uh, no, you are right, it's 2002, so we're yeah. just three or four episodes away from... Wow, that's a lot of... That's a lot of... Of Latrex. Yeah, all in a row. But, yeah. that's, but that's the way that we're watching because they're actually separated by decades at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but I mean, other than that, and I will say, like, I don't know exactly um, what they used for the paintings of Toulouse Trek. Like, I don't know if they used actual, like, facsimiles or if they had somebody kind of paint his style. Um, but I will say, I really, I do really like his, the art that we saw on the screen, um, except for, I would say, his faces needed work. Well, they're, but it's post-impression, it's post-impressionism. They're not supposed to be realistic. That's literally care. one of the arguments he has with people in the movie, where he's I'm like, not, use no, your I'm imagination. Not, I'm not saying that they they don't look realistic. I'm just saying I don't like the way they look. Oh, okay. So you don't like post-impressionism? Is the faces, for the faces, yes. The rest okay. of the stuff, I thought looked really good. Like his, like his poster of the Moulin Rouge, mm-hmm. with like this, with the silhouette people in the background and the bright color for the for the Can Can Dancer, like that looked really good. And it's a very iconic look, even though I hadn't seen it before this movie. It looks like it's something that could stand the test of time. And it has. It's and really- there, really has. like his 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 bodies are done really well. The, the, his clothing, it's just the face. Like if we can just mm-hmm. change the face, we're, we're good. Everybody's a critic. Speaking of um, critics, what do the critics have to say about this? I.e., the fun facts. Jose Ferreira was transformed into the short artist Toulouse Lautrec by the use of camera angles, makeup, costume, concealed pits and platforms, and short body doubles. Ferreira also used a set of special knee pads of his own design, which allowed him to walk on his knees with his lower legs strapped to his upper body. He suffered extreme pain and could only use them for a short period of time. The cane he used in most of the scenes was absolutely necessary. This fact was covered in a Life magazine story in 1952. I cannot imagine trying to walk with like your leg bent up behind your other leg. Forget that. Yeah. A famous story of the filming of this movie, when Technicolor printed the dailies according to legendary cinematographer Oswald Morris' specifications, the latter management confronted Morris and John and John Houston, claiming that the dailies were faulty. Houston and Morris screened them, and Houston allegedly turned to Morris and said, what do you think, Oz? To which he replied, exactly as I wanted. Houston replied, me too. They then turned to the Technicolor management with, gentlemen, thank you, and F you. After the movie was released, it became a personal favorite of Technicolor inventor Herbert T. Colmus. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. I liked the, I liked the F you part, especially. <laughs> <laughs> John Houston found out that Pablo Picasso himself was so interested in the shooting of the movie about the Moulin Rouge Cabaret and Henry de Toulouse-Lautrec that he rented a hotel room with a window just above
above places where some of the scenes were shot. Such a Pablo Picasso thing to do. Yeah, I didn't realize Picasso was that... Young, or that he was still around in the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to really enjoy Midnight in Paris. if you. <laughs> it's very it's very illuminating that way. You're like, so Ernest Hemingway, Pablo Picasso, and F. Scott Fitzgerald all knew each other, eh? Interesting, interesting. Like, writers, fine. Artists, I'm like, no artist was born after 1800. Yeah. Nope, that's <laughs> definitely not true. Um. All right. Uh, that was three, right? Yeah. Great. Let's move on to The Quiet Man, directed by John Ford, written by Frank S. Nugent and Maurice Walsh and John Ford, starring John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Barry Fitzgerald, and Victor McLagan. Um, nominated. Uh, oh, this is based on the novel by Graham Greene, I should have said. Um, and nominated uh, for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for McLagan, writing for screenplay. So in the 50s, there's two different types of writing awards. You can get like writing for the story and you can get writing for the screenplay and so this got an award for the screenplay um and so uh screenplay art direction and sound it won best director and best cinematography for film in color falls around a retired boxer played by john wayne who returns to the village of his birth in ireland where he falls for a spirited redhead whose brother is contemptuous of their union um i found this movie surprisingly fun i really liked it i thought it was very pretty i thought john wayne was just john wayne the whole time which is take it or leave it i thought he might have actually been the weakest actor in the movie easily he's uh, like everyone was so spirited and lively all around him like and not even in just like tone but in just like the way that their their lines were delivered and he was like yep well that's me john wayne and you're like all right stop calling yourself john wayne you're breaking the breaking the story man <laughs> um what are you deadpool yeah <laughs> uh yeah so i i liked it i thought the story was kind of simple right he he leaves america to go back home to go back home to Ireland and he's like this house cottage is where my mom lived and so I'm gonna buy it and live here and I'm going to charm the town with my American swagger you know because they're all crusty and at the end maybe they'll be a little less crusty the end of movie um I liked it yeah what'd you think um no this is this is a miss for me and it's you're right it's mainly because of John Wayne um this movie starts off really fun and funny with uh, him stepping off the train and all the Irish townspeople trying to give him different directions to the same place and then arguing amongst each other. Everyone was having fun with this movie and I think everyone but John Wayne knew that it was supposed to be more of a like a comedy? Yeah, it's supposed to it's supposed to be a comedy-esque. It's really a dramedy, I would say. Yeah. Not really a comedy so far. Because the reason that he goes to... The reason that he's in Ireland, I would not say is comedic in any particular way. Well, no. Um, the reason he left boxing isn't isn't comedic. The reason no, he's in all, Ireland... But, well, no. It's I not mean, like, like he was on reason, the run from the law. No, he's not. But, he's, but he is leaving to, like, escape his past or, like, escape his present to go to his past. You know, right? And so mm. I'm going to I'm gonna leave the world I know and go to the one that I wish I knew because life was quote unquote simpler here or whatever. Well, he uh, was born there and lived for a time. Uh, very yeah. I mean, he was a baby, so um, a baby, a baby. Uh, yeah. So I I did think that um I did think that um sometimes um Maureen O'Hara was like at a ten and John Wayne was at a two and so their scenes together didn't always blend for me because mm -hmm. she was 
like, I'm very expressive in all of these things. And John Wayne is just John Wayne. I mean, you hire him to do the John Wayne thing. Like, that's not like a mystery. Um, and so, but he's almost got the, like, the quiet Irish temperament that you would expect, whereas everybody else is loud and boisterous around him. So it's kind of playing with the, like, the idea of what you think Ireland is at the same time. Um, I really also really liked the horse race, um, because I've talked about this before that, you know, my, my wife is a, is an equestrian. So, um, like, you know, you watch horses and do their thing and it was so impressive what they were doing. Um, and so I just like, like, I liked the, maybe the really concrete stuff like that. It made it feel very earthy. Um, and I didn't find the story so hokey that sometimes the fifties can really like dive headfirst into like, um, like almost like total Hollywood land. And so now that we're kind of inching our way closer to the forties, we're getting slightly more realistic, maybe somber stories. Um, but yeah, yeah I liked it. I, I mean, the, the love story I think is very, very flimsy. And again, it's kind of, it's almost like the music man. Um, in yes, which, it's very in much which, like, like the there's man. no, there's no discernible reason why this girl falls for or is in love with this guy other than the fact that he's John Wayne because he I don't it's it's just weird and yep. no, I, I agree I agree it doesn't really make a lot of sense as much as she's like well you know what I've had too high a standard so the next guy with a heartbeat that comes by that's the man for me it's it's a little bit like that but it's also you know like the music man it's like look at the joy that he's bringing to this very morose what could be a very morose Rose place you know she's getting out of the thumb of her brother who's abusive and you know that kind of thing and he's just every kind of anything he's, but he's not like the the best either no he's not but he's definitely better than the brother i'm not saying that he's the like the best pick in town a little seven brides seven brothers that way like you'll do um you know let's yeah. let's get married i saw you with eyes um, yeah yeah give me some fun facts on quiet man though i'm uh, i've run out of steam for quiet man at the film's conclusion, after the credits, we see Kate and Sean standing in their garden waving goodbye. Maureen O'Hara turns to John Wayne and whispers something in his ear, invoking a priceless reaction from Wayne. What was said was known only to O'Hara, Wayne, and director John Ford. In exchange for saying this unscripted bit of text, O'Hara insisted that the exact line never be disclosed by any involved parties. In her memoir, she said that she refused to say the line at first because she couldn't possibly say that to John Wayne, but Ford insisted, claiming he needed a genuine shock reaction from Wayne. The line remains a mystery to this day. That's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. But also I love that John Houston knows um, or John Ford knows Wayne well enough to be like, I need an actual acting moment from him. So if you would be as so kind as to say this probably dirty thing to him, that would be great. No, she just whispered in his ear, I'm a communist. <laughs> uh. This was a significant departure for Republic Pictures, which specialized in low-budget westerns, comedies, and war pictures. It was the company's first and only film to receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. Good for them. In 1986, the wife of a young New York police officer who was paralyzed on the job saw fit to tell reporters that this was her husband's favorite movie and that he adored Maureen O'Hara. After reading the report, O'Hara flew to New York and went to the officer's bedside to comfort him and boost his morale. She became actively involved with the couple during his long recovery and physical therapy, attended their baby's christening, and marched in a parade on his behalf. Wow. 
Yeah. Good people. Good people. That's nice. I didn't see John Wayne doing that. No, because you weren't alive. That's why you didn't see him. 1986? No, you were alive. Damn. Yeah. I wasn't alive. Nope. <laughs> You're old. Anyway, let's talk about High Noon, directed by Fred Zinneman, written by Carl Foreman, based on the short story The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham, starring Gary Cooper, Thomas Mitchell, Lloyd Bridges, Katie Gerardo, and Grace Kelly. Nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Writing for a Screenplay, and it won Best Actor. Actor for Gary Cooper, editing an original song and music. Uh, it is about a town marshal, played by Gary Cooper, despite the disagreements of his newlywed bride and the townspeople around him, must face a gang of deadly killers alone at high nude when the gang leader, an outlaw he sent up to jail years ago, arrives on the noon train. Um, and so this is about really a, a guy who's kind of spent his whole life kind of, you know, defending the people of this town. And now it's their kind of time to defend him. And they're like, meh, meh, mm-hmm. it's fine, you know. And so like a movie about like how far does service get you and how are people grateful for what you give them and all that stuff. It, it, it feels like it's like kind of the one of the early forays into serious Westerns, right? You know, like kind of like, um, you know, Unforgiven or Slow West or, you know, the serious Western. Westerns, this kind of, um, it's a, it has that zone. Uh, to borrow your phrase, that being said, I really don't like Westerns, and I had a really hard time getting into this, even though hmm. I know that it was, it's more me. Like It like, is. Yeah. It isn't, or it is? No, it is. It is, yeah. Like, there's nothing wrong with, the, like, there's nothing wrong with this movie. It's well acted. It looks good. It actually moves at a pretty good clip. I like the stories fine. Gary Cooper is Gary Cooper. Um, and, but, that, like, I, it just didn't leave a huge it didn't leave a huge impression on me so like but i know that's my own taste versus what the movie actually is yeah like i i agree with you i typically don't like westerns aside from you know there there are some that i do really like but um the, the there's a few things in this movie that i thought it does really well i like how even though it's not exactly um, real time. I like that it is basically like this movie starts at like 1030 or whatever and ends at just a little bit past noon mm-hmm. with the gunfight. And that's about the amount of time that this movie is like it is almost real time. But because of some because of some editing and reassembly, the movie is a little bit longer than the minutes. Yeah, it's pretty close though. It's yeah, like it's it is, pretty it's pretty close to real time as you can yeah. get without really really adhering. Yeah. Um so that's one thing I really like about it cuz I don't necessarily mind movie time, but I hate in something where like this has a lot of this has a lot of emphasis on hey, the guy's coming at noon, it's 10:30, I have an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you keep seeing the time throughout the movie. So in I don't think Hollywood time would have really worked where like 20 things will happen and either it'll only have been two minutes or it'll been like an hour and 10 minutes. Yep. You know, it really needs to move at that pace to make this movie, to make this movie work. And I think it does a great job of it. Um, I do like finally seeing the, finally seeing the, um, the church scene that was parodied in Blazing Saddles. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Gary Cooper does a really good job. Grace Kelly's fine, although I didn't really, you know, Gary Cooper's over his over fifty in this movie, and Grace Kelly is in her twenties. So it, wow. while it's while it's kind of historically accurate as far as their age gap, uh, I just thought it looked weird on screen. Mm-hmm. Although Gary um, Cooper aged well, I would say I thought yeah. he looked great. Um, you know, the the acting in this is really good, and aside from like some some things where it's just like me 
being picky as much as like as much as like the story failing like like this entire movie you're like this guy's coming on the noon train to kill you know to to kill him and he's like i need a posse like i need i need like 20 people to help me it's four people like they're going against yep i know i know <laughs> it's yeah, four but they people they all have guns palmer they have it's, guns it's four people three of which were just like waiting at the train station that you could have easily picked off ahead of time yep yep yeah. uh, but it's the, the countdown it's the no you know, i know and like it, that it's... you know aside from like my brain going like well why didn't you just do this or this and like it would have been fine um i really but the story is an allegory so it really works um it's an allegory of of the people uh people not standing up to uh, mccarthy and the anti-communist sentiment uh, running through Hollywood at the time, uh, and it does a really good job of it. It hides it well to the, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm sure it didn't hide it as well when it came out. Uh, no, because I mean, it was probably on people's minds. Like I did not right. think of that. I did not think of that at yeah. all. I should have. Now I'm a little disappointed in myself. You should have. I'm. I am really. You know what? I'm getting a new co-host next year. Yeah, that's very impressive. I'm. I'm so happy yeah. for you. <laughs> Can you give me some fun facts on on High Noon? Uh, yes. Yes, I can. Fred Zimmerman said the black smoke billowing from the train is a sign that the brakes were failing. He and the cameraman didn't know it at the time and barely got out of the way. The camera tripod snagged itself on the track and fell over, smashing the camera. But the film survived and is in the movie. Wow, that's crazy. That's <laughs> that's movie-making, baby. Yep. The film was intended as an allegory for the failure by some of Hollywood community to stand up to the House of Un-American Activities Committee during Senator McCarthy's hunt to find communists in the film industry. Writer Carl Foreman himself was summoned to appear before the committee due to prior membership of the American Communist Party and was subsequently blacklisted when he refused to name other members. Hmm. Uh, this movie also has um, Lloyd Bridges, who was quote-unquote gray-listed. What does that mean? We're watching you? Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. okay. Huh. Uh, Jeff the Bridges' cli- dad, Lloyd Bridges? Yeah, and yeah. Bo Bridges. Bo Bridges yeah. was actually yeah. on the set for the fight between Gary Cooper and, and Lloyd Bridges. I guess he was in like a like he was sitting on one of like the haystacks in the back like off camera and when Gary Cooper throws the water to wake up Lloyd Bridges like he laughed and it made them do a they they had to do a <laughs> second great. take That's and I great. guess at the time uh, Cooper was in a lot of pain because he had a bleeding ulcer throughout this Oof. yeah so uh, <laughs> it was that, that's where his weariness comes from that's like the acting that he has yeah. the whole time they're like wow give that man an Oscar he, he looks the in weight so of much his pain. ears are really on there and he's like yeah. I had an ulcer it was really painful <laughs> the climax begins with a long pullback from Gary Cooper walking the dusty streets of the desolate town Fred Zimmerman achieved this by using a long crane that he borrowed from fellow director George Stevens if you look closely you can see in the upper frame the nearby Warner Brothers studio lot the same western set on the Columbia picture lot was used by Zimmerman as Hawaiian locale from from here to eternity that's pretty cool yeah that's pretty cool I like that they all hung out it's fun it's fun okay that was three right yeah yeah. All right, let's move on. Ivanhoe, directed by Richard Thorpe, written by Noel Langley, Aeneas McKenzie, Marguerite Roberts, based on the novel by Walter Scott. Sir Walter Scott, I should really say. Uh, starring Robert Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor, Joan Fontaine, George Sanders, and Emlyn Williams. Nominated for Best Picture, Cinematography.
cinematography and music, this movie won zero awards. Uh, story revolves around a knight, Ivanhoe, uh, who seeks to free the captive King Richard and put him back on the throne. Um, I thought that this movie was fun and pretty, and that was about it. Um, like I thought, like I thought it, all of it was. I thought all of it was serviceable. Like it was an over-the-top historical. It was an over-the-top historical romance. Um, and and that was and that was it. I thought Miklos Rosa's music was really it was actually really strong. Um, because I think he did Quo Vadis like ten years previously. Um, or maybe maybe uh the year previously. I can't remember. Um, the ten years is I think too too long for Quo Vadis. But um uh and and that kind of labeled him as like the epic guy where he just did a lot of epic scores and so just like what he brought I just like what he brought to the table um for this one and but that but that was that's kind of about it I mean everybody it's like it's hammy like everything about the movie is like up a notch you're um, hammy but I thought that like it had a good for the most part it had a good energy the action was solid um and though I do I went to something I can't remember where England? I was went to England might have actually been England no Austria it, no I didn't go to Austria but could have been England but I was there was something where I was talking to a guy about um uh about um Ivanhoe about, not Ivanhoe what do you call it when like they're on two horses and they you know they hit each other with giant sticks jousting jousting thank you whereas you actually wouldn't really unseat the people on the horse like that's not so like when you see in movies where people get continually get knocked off the horse like that like almost never happened like ever um that's a lie I've seen a knight's tale yeah okay great yeah the movie that everyone sings we will rock you um, yeah at the time of Chaucer the, yeah yeah uh-huh. yeah super the, the accurate Chaucer period poem of we will rock you yes yeah no no uh so anyway yeah what do you think about Ivanhoe uh I absolutely adored it for a oh, movie great. that I had known nothing about and didn't know um didn't even know that it was about like the Robin Hood era thing mm-hmm. where I was like oh this is gonna be some boring like world history movie and then like 10 minutes in you're like that's Robin Hood <laughs> <laughs> well you kind of spoiled it when you told me Robin Hood was in it beforehand uh, well he doesn't wear green or a feather in his hat so I wasn't sure if you would get it right away so and they just call him Loxley I don't think they actually call him Robin Hood I, I, I'm you know I'm not sure actually that's a great question yeah um but you're right it is it is kind of hammy it is kind of turned up it's a movie that's under two hours which is another thing that surprised me like I heard the word Ivanhoe and I'm like this is this is at least a five hour yeah this is a, like this, this is, is got, a Ten Commandments epic right yeah, here this has got two this has got two intermissions a juggling act and something. Yeah, uh, but, the, then, but he actually realized that was the greatest show on earth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the the costumes are really good. I thought the I thought the acting was really good. I love. I liked the. I did like the love story in this. The like and the like the the multiple sides of like unrequited love versus people that were actually in love. Um, it's probably you know aside from say uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, it's probably the best Robin Hood movie too. Oh, um, I'd have to go back and watch some Robin Hood movies. My favorite is Men in Tights, and I don't know if that counts as a Robin Hood movie. Okay, not, yeah, yeah, no, so. we're not. We're counting like serious Robin Hood movies. Okay. Oh yeah. Then uh, otherwise it goes like Prince of Thieves and Men in Tights and then everything else. No, actually, no. The Errol Flynn Robin Hood movie was quite good. We watched that one already. The Adventures yeah. of Robin Hood. Yeah, that, was, that was good. Yeah, he was a little. Yeah. Uh, the guy who played King John was really good. Okay, so but help me out here because he comes on screen and you're like, that's the 
the king drawn from the Disney the Disney cartoon. Like was the not colors are the same. Like the shape of his face is is the same, except for the fact that he's not a lion. Yeah. Um, but like he, they, the beard. Yeah. He yeah. he clearly looks like somebody at Disney was like, okay, we're making a Robin Hood movie, so we all liked Ivanhoe, right? Okay, great. And then they just <laughs> made they made Prince John look like they made Prince John look like him, and I loved and, it. I thought that yeah. was great. And then um, like the main the main bad soldier was the voice of Shere Khan in Jungle Book. Yeah, I did not realize that when I was watching it. I wish I had I wish I had noticed. I wish you had noticed too. Like I heard it, I'm like, this this voice is very familiar. I was like, this this definitely sounds like a um I was like this sounds like a Disney voice. So I I didn't know who it was. Uh but I so I looked it up. I forgot I had actually thought it was somebody else, but I couldn't I can't remember who. But yeah, he he played Shere Khan. Um the fighting is really good, although I did I did text you at one point like during the during the scene in which they're attacking the castle, the opening volley of archers from Robin Hood, you see them all like you see like three shots of separate of like a group of separate groups of archers let loosing arrows and then they cut to a tight shot of the soldiers coming out of the castle across the drawbridge and it looks like someone was just off camera with fistfuls of arrows throwing them. It's true. They were anybody they got to anybody they got for that art for any kind of archery, they were like, um, have you ever held a bow and arrow before? No. Doesn't matter. Doesn't Let's matter. Go. You just need you just need to get it off camera and we'll throw them in. It's true. I, although I did like I said to you, like I it, it felt more realistic to me that way, like how many arrows didn't make it. They were like yeah. I'm just some dude from some village somewhere. <laughs> like I don't know how to use this thing. Yeah. Um so I enjoyed that. And I thought the beginning of it moved at a good clip and even though it was under two hours, it did slow down for me at a certain point where I was like, Okay, I get it. Like let's 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 keep it rolling here. Okay. Um but uh, I mean that's a that, that's a fair criticism and I could see I could see that point of view. It didn't necessarily happen for me, but I could definitely see that point of view. Yeah. Give me some fun facts on Ivanhoe. Yeah. At the beginning of the movie, Sir Wilfred of Ivanhoe is looking for King Richard by singing until he finds the king. This is historically accurate, with the exception that the singer was a menstrual called Blondel. When Leopold of Austria captured King Richard, Blondel went around to all the castles singing King Richard's favorite song. One story had it that King Richard actually co-wrote the song. When he heard King Richard join in the chorus, he went home and told his he told the Normans where King Richard was. That's pretty awesome. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Although King Richard the Lionheart was a beloved king of England, he was actually French and spoke almost no English at all. Of a ten-year reign as king, Richard spent only six months in England. The rest of the time was spent at war, most notably the Third Crusade. Yep, that is true, because you don't get English the way that um, we might recognize it until Chaucer, so we're um, quite a while away still. Screenwriter, screenwriter Marguerite Roberts had been a member of the American Communist Party, and in 1951, she was ordered to appear before the House Un-American Activities Committee. She and her husband, John Sanford, refused to name fellow members of the party and were blacklisted. MGM received permission from the Screenwriters Guild to remove Roberts' name from the movie after she refused to testify before the committee. Hmm. Wow, a lot of... Um... Lots and lots of 
House of Un-American Activities this uh, uh They will time. always be because I absolutely hate that period of time, so. Yeah, no, I, it's a fascinating era, so yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you I, keep bringing it up. I did omit two things from, uh, from High Noon that both actually, that would have tied into John Wayne because John Wayne was originally offered the part in High Noon, but didn't do it because it was an allegory uh, against McCarthy. Oh, sure, and he was like, nope, don't like that. I'm all American. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and then, to top it off, he's uh, Gary Cooper was not at the Academy Awards when he won Best Actor, and the person who had to accept it for him was John Wayne. That's fabulous. Who, so then, who then, in true, like, 2020 uh, Republican fashion, went out there and was like, I'm kind of upset they never offered me this part. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he maybe was joking, you know, because everyone went, ha, 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 John Wayne, you know you messed up. Uh, but anyway, I those mean, was, those were some fun facts. Yeah, they yeah, were. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about The Greatest Show on Earth. Earth, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, written by Frederick M. Shank, Theodore St. John, and Frank Cavett, starring Betty Hutton, Cornel Wilde, Char- uh, Charlotte, <laughs> autocorrect, Charlton Heston, Dorothy Lamour, Gloria Graham, and James Stewart, which I thought was funny that as he got older, they were like, drop the Jimmy, give me the James. Um, <laughs> nominated for Best Director, Costume Design, and Editing, this movie won Best Picture and Best Writing. Uh, the story revolves around the dramatic lives of trapeze artists, a clown, and an elephant trainer, who are told against a back, uh, all of which is told against a background of circus spectacle, meaning that this movie is about four hours long and two and a half hours of that is just circus acts. Um, that is a stretch. Yeah, it's more like three hours of circus tricks. <laughs> um, that is accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, when I th- I thought this movie when it works it really works and it's good but the majority of it is so boring but like but there was some stuff in here that I was like this is good this is quality you're telling an interesting story like oh we got to bring like we're gonna we're gonna close the circus if we don't you know if we don't make more money so um so we got to bring in this like big name and that like sideline somebody else and there's interpolit like almost like interoffice politics involved and stuff like that and there's like a weird murder plot and there's a big train crash that was well done and like there's some stuff that was great but I was so ready for this movie to be over when it was over and I found the last 20 minutes the most interesting part of the movie oh from the train crash yeah from the train crash onward I was like yes this is the good stuff you should have led with this and gone backwards um there's slight spoilers on you know on this movie but like the idea that like there's a doctor hiding out as a clown in a circus because he killed a patient and he's on the run from the law and so I'm like that's cool I want more of that I want please. the sequel of his of his uh, of his uh, court case because I'm pretty sure I know what happened greatest show on earth sequel i got you let's look it up yeah. it was a tv series yes it was starting jack palance oh what? yeah yeah oh i was a oh please tell production. me he played the uh the runner of the circus palance portrayed johnny slate the circus manager who became yeah. involved in the personal lives of the circus performers nice Went 30 episodes excellent which is almost as long as this movie was yeah mm-hmm. so it's a shot by shot remake apparently wow yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, i actually really enjoyed it i love circuses so like the the minutes of circus acts was fine 
Charlton Heston, I think, does a really good job at playing Indiana Circus Runner. Yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> I actually didn't realize it was Charlie Hess for a while. Yeah. Uh, I I love the fact that, that Jimmy Stewart is a clown and is never out of makeup. Never. For obvious reasons. That's the best part of the movie. He yeah. never takes off his makeup, even when he's just relaxing with everybody. <laughs> even, even when he's... <laughs> Even when he's performing surgery on a dying man, he's still doing it as a clown. Exactly. Oh, it's, it's magical stuff. Um, I think this it, – because it's Cecil B. DeMille, it has the grandeur and scope of, say, Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. And I think you get that a lot with um, with the like pullback shots of the circus going on. I will say I could have done without the intercut narration of like what it takes to put on the circus sure but i did find it somewhat um somewhat illuminating because you know we came along at a point where they were they were just going to like the boston garden or the providence civic center mm-hmm. you know you know before they actually had like they had teams of people that would get to the town beforehand to set you know to set up an actual big top you know it was yeah. it was a very involved thing um but uh so you know yeah this movie this movie at times is like 13 different movies mm-hmm. and i i will agree that i wish it kind of like like became a little bit more focused and i will agree with you the 20 the last 20 ish minutes from the from the bank robbery or the train robbery to the train crashing are the best moments of this of the movie mm-hmm. and it's a really good payoff and it kind of wraps up pretty fast after that um i will you know but all, overall i i really enjoyed this this year i thought gave me a bunch of really good surprises i kind of figured i would like the greatest show on earth but i didn't know what i was getting when i walked into it yeah but um yeah yeah no i'm i'm with you i think when it like i said when it works it works and when it doesn't for me it just did not it just did which, not work yeah which is very understandable like if you if you can't just like go from you really it's it's hard to go from an actual movie to then just watching circus acts for 10 15 minutes and it's a it's a weird kind of idea to do but mm-hmm. i i think he made it work but i was just like i'm very interested in that so yep it's it's definitely something that if you can get into it you won't notice it as much if you can't it will become a grind yep yeah well and there uh, the grind for you or grind for me and not so much for you so i think yeah, that's a, why that's don't, a win you should really like more things you should be like me yeah, huh? Yeah, you love things. Yeah, yeah. Um, give me some fun facts. During one scene, Sebastian is hanging from the trapeze by his knees. He catches Holly, then pulls her up and kisses her. During one of the early takes, Wilde tore the ligaments of, in his shoulder. He managed to make it through two more takes, then had to stop. He was unable to use his arm for several days, so Cecil B. DeMille shot the scenes where he was not needed. Hmm, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Conspicuous mention is made of the circus tent's fireproof quality. This is because only a few years earlier, 1944, 167 people were killed and hundreds more injured when a Ringling Brothers Big Top caught fire and burned to the ground in Hartford, Connecticut. This movie is seen by some as an elaborate public relations gesture by Ringling Brothers. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille did not tolerate background noise of any kind during filming and would often banish extras or crew from the set for disrupting film. One day he came back to his office earlier than usual and his secretary said, what happened? Mr. DeMille, did you talk during a take? 
<laughs> That's great. <laughs> she was promptly fired. Yeah, right. I'm sure she was. <laughs> oh man, this is good. This is a good fun fact. Yeah. All right. So you, uh, Palmer, you that know was where three, we, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know where we are. But everybody who's listening, you can find us on AcademyRewind.com and ThoughtBubbleAudio.com, and where all other ThoughtBubble Audio shows can be found. You can rate and review us on iTunes and other places that podcasts can be listened to, and uh, you can support us on patreon.com slash thought bubble audio palmer you ready for the 1953 rewindies am i good am i no that was a question am i (laughs) i don't know i don't know i'll start you make it up okay okay i mean Um, that's what i usually do i know um so we will start with supporting actor and go through all the categories of course um we can only choose movies um from these five selections and here we go supporting actor i'm going to give to victor mcclagan from the quiet man he was the brother right Uh, was he the he was the friend oh he was the the horse driver buggy yeah. guy yeah oh that's a good choice it's it's difficult because my my top three would be him the brother and jimmy stewart yep so, i almost went with jimmy stewart too that i just we've just seen him in better things yeah and so i don't think he did anything extraordinarily different here apart from wearing clown makeup the whole time and i don't know if that's worth the the win <laughs> i am gonna go with the brother from quiet man okay uh supporting actress i'll give to colette marchand from moulin rouge because there aren't a lot of choices here Palmer. Uh, I am going to give it to uh, Grace Kelly from Heinz. Sure. Okay. Uh, Production design, we're going to give to Moulin Rouge. Oh, that's tough. I have to go with the greatest show on earth. Okay. Costume design, I'm also going to give to Moulin Rouge. (sighs) Greatest show on earth. Okay. Uh, Makeup and hairstyling, I'm going to give to Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge. Music to Ivanhoe. Ooh, I... I would have said Ivanhoe, but then after that, I watched High Noon. And while I will say that one of the things I talked about in Dr. Shivago was the overuse of the theme, mm-hmm. I felt like in this, not necessarily like the ballad, but the way that they kind of folded in pieces of the ballad throughout the rest of the score, yep. I thought did really well. So I'm going to say High Noon. Okay. All right. Well done. Uh, visual effects, I'm going to give to Ivanhoe. Uh, I have to give it to Greatest Show on Earth, uh, okay. just for the train sequence. The train sequence? Yeah, yeah, I know. I was really close, but I just thought that Ivanhoe was consistent. You just thought those guys throwing arrows were really good? It was good. really good. It was really solid. Yeah. It was strong. Uh, cinematography, I'm going to give to The Quiet Man. I'm going to give it to Ivanhoe. Okay. It, it was solid. It was good stuff. Yeah. Uh, editing, I'm going to give to High Noon. I will give it to High Noon. Sound to The Quiet Man. That's that's an oxymoron. Yeah, I know. That's why I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sound, I will give to High Noon. Okay. Uh, best actor, I'm going to give to Jose Ferrer for Moulin Rouge. Best actor, I will give to Jose Ferrer for Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Okay. Best actress, I'll give to Maureen O'Hara for The Quiet Man. Yeah, Maureen O'Hara. Yeah. Uh, best writing for High Noon. Best writing, I will give to Ivanhoe. Okay. And best picture, I'm going to give to High Noon. Uh, I am going to agree with you, but I will say High Noon, Ivanhoe, greatest show on earth. It was close for you. Yeah. Like, Ivanhoe was definitely in the running. Great Greatest show on earth just because of the scope and and all of the working parts that needed to work off mm-hmm. to make the movie interesting. And I will say that it's a definite probably third place out of the three because you're right at times it 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 does misfire. Um, but it's it's a close it's a close one two three. And even like really the only movie I I kind of disliked was was Quiet Man. And I didn't really I didn't really dislike it. I thought. 
thought all of like the supporting actors made the movie enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But out of the five, it's definitely like last place. Yep, yep. Um, and yep. then uh, Moulin Rouge, like if if it just had a little bit more interesting story, I think. Yep, I agree with you though. Like none of these were terrible. Like sometimes yeah. it's usually like one movie you're like, oh my god, what yeah. have I watched? Um, there's just some more stronger than others, and I I put my own bias aside to recognize that High Noon is the better of the pictures than the rest of them. But um, but this that's was it. Yeah, yeah, that's what everyone actually thought back when uh, Greatest Show came, uh, won. They figured they they was considered a huge upset against High Noon. Mm, really, and and um, the speculation in Hollywood or among the Hollywood elites was that the Academy gave the award to Greatest Show on Earth um, to kind of to kind of uh, not necessarily make peace, but um, but to uh, pacify the McCarthy the gotcha. McCarthy uh, faction uh, of which Cecil B. DeMille was one. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, that yeah that makes sense. I mean, we, we know from years of doing this and even just watching them now that so many of the award winners are win for very political reasons. Um, yeah. And so even the nominees themselves are a lot of times very political. So um, yeah. So that's fine. Uh, let's talk about what we're going to watch next. Nineteen forty three. This is actually the last episode of the season because there Ooh. were no Academy Awards in nineteen thirty three. Um, they skipped them because the times were tough, and they started in nineteen and they, they went to nineteen thirty four instead. So we have Mrs. Minivere, the forty ninth parallel, Talk of the Town, The Magnificent Ambersons, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Wake Island, King's Row, The Pride of the Yankees, Random Harvest, and The Pied Piper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I've actually watched all of these already because I'm I'm real ahead of of our watch schedule and so you're in for some treats my friend um there were actually some surprisingly uh strong films in here so don't be um don't be worried but i i but i won't tell you which ones you need to discover on your own okay yeah sounds good that's good well uh they're uh actually playing us off no i have some more bye bye